This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. One thing we try to stress here on the show is that your soil health journey is going to look quite a bit different from others based on your specific goals. That could be trafficability, weed suppression, water infiltration, livestock integration, or a whole host of other potential worthwhile goals. Keeping these goals at the forefront of your mind is going to be helpful in determining which practices we discuss might be right for you. But with that said, it's also nice to see incentives popping up from government, organizations, companies, all to help assist farmers in building healthier soils. Now, while these incentives shouldn't take the place of the goals you have for your farm, they can help de-risk the process of trying some of these soil health building practices. Today's guest works with large food and beverage companies that want to do their part to improve the soil of the farmers that produce their raw ingredients. You're going to get insights into how they're viewing soil health and what approaches they're taking to support farmers that are on this journey. Our guest today is Elizabeth Reeves, Senior Program Director for Agriculture and Environment at the Sustainable Food Lab. This is an organization that works with large multinational food and beverage companies to connect the commitments they've made to climate or regenerative agriculture or alleviating poverty in their supply chains to direct investment on the ground with farmers. So to kick off today's conversation, I asked Elizabeth where they start when they begin working with one of these large food and beverage companies. And somewhat surprisingly, she says it starts on the farm. So I think just like a lot of farmers never get to meet their end customers, like a a PepsiCo that's putting corn that they're growing into their potato chips or wheat that they're growing into a loaf of bread or a cereal or a granola bar. Believe it or not, not everyone has ever really been to a farm or had a conversation with a farmer just about what it takes to, you know, to maintain a very complex system with a whole lot of variables. And so The place that we most often like to start is taking our company partners to visit farmers in a particular place. And those are often some of the most powerful learning experiences because they get to have a real conversation with farmers and they get to, you know, not just hear what the farmers' challenges are, but also what farmers have already done and tried and what they're testing and innovating. And so I can't underscore the value of, especially for your listeners, if they have opportunities to host companies or try to bring their end customers to the farm, those are often the most transformative moments for our companies in terms of really understanding, oh, okay, these are the people who are growing food for us. And these are the things that we need to provide in terms of program support if we want to work with them to get to some of these goals. I think this point she's making about hosting more of these stakeholders on farms is a really important one. I mean, for all of the talk out there about soil health, it's so incredibly vital that the people who are offering these incentives and voicing their opinions and visions have those grounded in what's actually executable at the farm level. A great example is a couple summers ago, 
we brought a group of corporate executives out to a farm in Iowa. And we had NRCS bring the rainfall simulator out to that farm. And as you can imagine, you know, we're standing in this farmer's yard. And of course, we're looking out over a vast field of corn. And, you know, the whole group then got to witness the simulation of the impacts on soil when rain falls on farm fields. And, you know, they watched the difference in the water as it drained out of those different tins of soil. And they saw the tilled field compared to the field with more crop residue compared to the field that had a small grain crop growing on it. So like a a third crop in the corn and soybean rotation. I was watching this group as they watched the rainfall simulator. And they just had this moment where suddenly it completely connected for them. And they saw, oh, this is what we mean when we say, keep the ground covered, for example. And, you know, one of the most senior executives on the trip was holding a journal and she had her pen in her hand and she was taking lots of notes. And she stopped and she asked the farmer, she said, well, you know, it's so obvious you know, why don't you just plant more oats and plant more cover crops? And why isn't your whole farm, you know, in this cover crop system? And the farmer said to her, he said, look, you know, I've got 40 crops in my lifetime. That's like 40 chances to get it right. The risk of not getting it right is really terrifying. And he sort of stretched his arm out across the corn horizon, which of course you can just like imagine. And he said, look, I'm kind of alone out here. I'm the only one of my neighbors who plants cover crops and they don't just think I'm different. They think I'm passing judgment on the way they farm. And then, you know, he paused and he said, you know, I'd love to grow more oats. I can grow great corn after oats, but right now we don't have anywhere to sell those oats. There's no market for that. And the executive, when we got back to kind of debrief that visit, she was like, oh, I can really see why we need to have organizations like, you know, the NDSU Soil Health Program or the Practical Farmers of Iowa Program that are really going to provide the support that a farmer like Jeremy is going to need, like technical support, along with financial support to de-risk that practice change, along with just a community to be part of, so that, you know, That farmer can be an ambassador, both for what he's doing, but also meet others who are doing similar practices. So just the ability to both connect the words on a page when we talk about soil building systems to that clear trickle of water coming out of the rainfall simulator was such an important moment. And then to hear kind of like what it takes to really support a farmer on that journey was also like a really important moment. I think any opportunity we get to bring more nuance to the soil health conversation that's grounded in the complexities at the farm level, it's a good thing. For Elizabeth and the Sustainable Food Lab, they need to take these teachable moments and actually convert them into both short-term and long-term outcomes. You know, I think there's a lot of this work that involves being able to provide some quick wins to companies and also then to help them balance those quick wins with some of the longer term nature of farmers transitioning to a soil building system. And so by that, I mean, from my experience, most farmers I talk with, you know, this is at the very least a 15 year journey. 
And some quick wins can happen in one to three years, in particular around some of those, I guess, what we think of as like early kind of first step opportunities to dip the toe into a soil building system. So we'll frequently advise our company partners to design programs in which they're providing some cost share to de-risk practice change for cover crops, for example, recognizing that that is a kind of an easy way for them to get a, a quick win. They can actually pay some money to have a cover crop put in the system, but also a way in which they can start to build you know, a whole network or community of farmers who are trying out those new practices. So we always make sure that there are at least three pillars of support that companies are thinking about. The technical assistance, the financial incentive to de-risk the practice change, as well as creating some of that social kind of network community so that farmers have peers to learn from. But of course, this is going to be a lot more difficult to do in practice than it is to talk about it on a podcast. These are complex issues that the companies are trying to tackle on a very large scale. One of the barriers, Elizabeth says, is in being able to track that the practices are actually working on the farm level. The measurement piece is a tricky piece for a number of reasons. One, just the, the science is in particular being able to measure credibly in a scientifically valid way that is also relatively cost effective and not overly burdensome to farmers and the rest of the supply chain to have to report on. You know, we have some tools out there that can model how a cover crop in a certain soil type in a temperate climate like North Dakota that gets, you know, a certain amount of rainfall every year is going to result in sort of a range of carbon sequestration, for example, or what the emissions reductions are related to using variable rate technology and reducing fertilizer by about 10%. So there's models out there that can take some of those soil health management practices and model them into some of the outcomes that companies need then need to report against their targets. But for the most part, that in-field measurement remains pretty prohibitive because it is not particularly cost-effective. And there isn't, you know, using satellite technology or other um, shortcuts to try to get to those measures is not readily available yet. So for example, a company that has a regenerative acres goal is probably at this point just going to count practices and might try to report on some outcomes like reduced emissions that they can use those practices to model emissions reductions and other outcomes. And they care about a whole host of things. I mean, they care about resilience. They care about biodiversity. They care about water quality improvements. Many of them also have farm viability and farmer profitability as part of those goals. But their ability to measure that in a way that's not overly burdensome or, you know, really invasive of farmer privacy, you know, is still pretty challenging. I will say that frequently we have to do a lot of explaining around, you know, why would farmers need to provide their data to a company? What does the company do with that data? What is the privacy around that data? And I think those are all really good questions And often companies just assume that everyone's okay with a measurement approach and 
they forget to explain that, you know, they can't demonstrate change unless they first establish a baseline and that they can't tell the story of all of the good practices that are already underway until they first get that baseline. So there's some value, I think, for farmers in being able to tell the story of what they've already done from, you know, being part of a program that does require measurement. And I think most of the companies that we work with are pretty aware of the burden that all of that additional data collection requires and are looking for ways to make it less burdensome return more value to farmers, as well as be as sort of cost effective as possible. To try to navigate all of this complexity that involves things like farmer privacy and profitability and changes in behaviors and measurement of outcomes, the way that many of these companies are finding that they can add the most value is actually through supporting services such as cost share programs, outreach and farmer networking events. So for the most part, We have companies investing in programs and not making that investment through the way in which they purchase products. So there's not a premium as the end market for being part of a regenerative agriculture program. So companies are trying to increase the value of the program by providing that suite of services that farmers might not be able to access elsewhere. So bringing together the technical assistance, being able to de-risk the practices through a financial incentive like a per acre cost share and investing in kind of the farmer events and, and network type opportunities that an organization might be able to provide. And the reason for this is they don't want to embark on a certification path And if we just take corn, for example, the majority of the companies that I work with, they're providing about 6% of the demand for all of the corn produced in the U.S. So they're really kind of early adopters among all of the other end users of corn. And so until there's some sort of policy shift that can increase costs of goods for everybody, I think they're still operating under a program investment model rather than a premium type certification type model. So this is a little bit of a different approach from carbon markets and carbon credits that have dominated a lot of the headlines out there. This program investment model understands that trying out some of these practices often requires more than just financial incentives. So some companies are exploring the carbon market approach And some companies are saying, look, we don't think that a carbon market only approach is going to get to the scale that we need because farmers need all of these other support services and a market that's alone is not going to drive that kind of change that's required. And those markets come with a lot of uncertainty. Not every farmer is going to want to participate in one. They don't always benefit farmers who have already adopted practices. And so we're going to invest into organizations like NDSU or Practical Farmers of Iowa or, you know, the South Dakota Soil Health Coalition. And we're going to provide them with fairly flexible 
pool of cost share dollars. You know, there's not a lot of paperwork attached to it. There's flexibility in terms of the number of acres you can enroll in the program. And we're going to invest in the farmer network as a way of reaching farmers to meet our goals. So I would say that those are the two primary approaches. Companies are also exploring ways in which they can work with ag retailers and other input providers, knowing that those consultants reach a lot of farmers on an annual basis and touch a lot of acres. And so if there are ways in which they can work alongside those trusted advisors to have them help deliver the message and help support farmers that they're working with to join their programs and to become part of, say, you know, the PepsiCo regenerative sugar beet program in North Dakota, if that was, you know, something to exist one day, or the PepsiCo Cargill corn program in Iowa, if they can reach those ag retailers and trusted advisors and bring them along on the journey that they can reach more farmers. So I think, you know, companies are looking for ways to scale their reach all the time, but they really want to make sure that those methods are, you know, providing kind of all of the support enabling conditions that we know that are really going to help farmers be as successful as possible. It is important to note here that this is all still really new for most of these companies. There's a lot of experimenting going on in both the carbon market side as well as these more comprehensive support programs. Ultimately, it does seem like these companies are going to incentivize supply chains that are better for soil health. But there's still quite a bit of experimenting that needs to happen to get there. Yeah, companies are still experimenting with what is going to work best and what type of financial incentive is going to work best, What where the gaps are in terms of the accessibility of advice and you know that trusted advisor support, how to really scale that so that it's you know more of a, a way of thinking about farming rather than just something that you know a handful of early adopters do. It's testing out different types of innovative finance mechanisms. So are there ways in which the data that they're collecting today from farmers or the data that USDA might already have can demonstrate that farmers who are in soil building systems are less risky and therefore they should have access to lower interest loans or better credit when it comes to annual financing of another you know, annual crop production loans or other types of capital investment that farmers might need to take a loan for in order to make a bigger transition to a soil health system. So I'm thinking about all the costs associated with integrating livestock back into a system and are there ways to demonstrate that those farmers are a really good investment and therefore should get some incentive through the way in which they interact with their bank loans. And are there actually ways that companies can help secure those loans for them as well? You know, they're really just trying to figure out what the the best path is, all while recognizing that farmers have a lot of options when it comes to selling their crops and that they really need to be you know, returning some value to farmers through the different types of offerings that they're making. 
And this is where Elizabeth said she'd encourage farmers to take the first step by asking their buyers or even their input providers if there are any programs out there that incentivize soil health building practices. She says they may not have options for you right away, but when farmers ask for these programs, it at least gives them an idea that they may need to seek some out in order to stay relevant to their customers. She also emphasized that this is not just a U.S.-focused trend. It's happening around the world. So I think any farmers that are dependent on export markets, we know that in terms of the future, there's likely that anyone who is dependent on European markets or even some Asian markets, that they will have to meet certain new restrictions from a regulatory perspective as it relates to being able to account for emissions associated with the production of that crop or that product. And we already see that with ethanol, right, in Europe. So I think from a like looking out on the long term, we can see that that will likely drive a lot of change as that sort of potential for regulation becomes more likely. In the U.S., I think we'll continue to see more and more companies make these types of commitments and think about how then they're going to incentivize and actually be able to account and demonstrate progress against those commitments. So I think that we will see that and we'll just continue to see sort of an exponential growth in both the number of consumers that expect companies to be making these types of commitments and be demonstrating progress against them, as well as the investor pressure that companies are going to start to get in order to make those types of commitments. So, you know, in terms of the future, those are some of the kind of outlooks that I think we can continue to think about. What I would personally love to see is that also we get some, you know, really good rule changes in place that can help scale the flexibility of financial dollars that are available through USDA to support and help de-risk a larger number of acres on the ground, as well as being able to start to realize some of these aspirations like new innovative financing products that can really help create that incentive or that pull for farmer practice change. Because I think what we know doesn't work is pushing a set of standards. And I think most of the companies, at least the ones that I work with, really want to figure out how to pull a whole system to change at scale. So I'm really optimistic, actually, that through partnerships between companies with organizations like NDSU and the farmer networks that they're building and the farmers that they can reach, that we actually start to see some of that real tide change. That's a great note to end on for today's episode. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Reeves for giving us a perspective from the food and beverage side of soil health. There's certainly a lot of interest in these topics, and hopefully that translates into more opportunities for farmers. Learn more about Elizabeth's work at the Sustainable Food Lab website, which is just sustainablefoodlab.org. Thanks as well to our sponsors of SoilSense, the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. And please share these episodes on Twitter using the hashtag SoilSense. We'll be back with another great episode next week.